Father, we thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your love poured out on us. Thank You for Your mercies that are never ending. Lord, I pray You'll bless now the the time that we spend before You listening to Your Word. But we do so, Father, again, recognizing Your holiness and recognizing how far beyond us You truly are. And we come before You declaring that You are awesome and perfect. Father, You are breathtaking and magnificent in all Your splendor. And in our humanity, Lord, we have barely scratched the surface of understanding how holy You really are. It's funny, Lord, it's a a catch-22 for me because on the one hand, I know Your Word calls us to, to desire You, to desire relationship with You, to seek after intimacy, to be devoted to You as as a bride to her groom and yet on the other hand Father I also recognize that your word talks about you as wholly different as one deserving of all awe and fear and so I find myself Lord this morning somewhere in the middle wanting to pursue you and be close to you but doing so with head bowed because I I hear you, Lord. You are awesome. May we approach you, Father, this morning with with the awe and respect that your name deserves. And I pray, Father, as we study, that we wouldn't just make assumptions about your nature or your character. Father, we approach you with the utmost respect and with a desire to know you as you reveal yourself not as we want you to be but as you truly are Father may we know you in this way in Jesus name Amen Judges chapter 10 Beginning in verse 1. Judges chapter 10 and verse 1. Now last week, we looked at the first couple of verses of Judges 10. We're going to go ahead and finish out the chapter. I have a, a plan. You might not know that. The plan for moving us through the Bible, and typically about two to three months out, I kind of know where we're going, and I know what I'm going to be teaching on Sundays, generically speaking. You know, I, I try and leave it open for where the Lord's leading during the week, but I can tell you, for example, that by the end of the summer, we will finish not only Judges, but Ruth, and this fall, the plan is to be into 1 Samuel. I can tell you we're on about the 15 year plan of moving through the Bible some of you might say 20, 25 but for all of my plans things happen 
I had to cancel Wednesday night because I was sick, and I wasn't even sure about this morning until, well, until this morning, to be honest. But as I, as I go through, last week we were going to study through chapter 10 on Wednesday night and then move on to the Judge Jephthah in chapter 11. And there's a story there that's going to blow your mind. I'm going to save that one for next week. But I kind of sat back and thought, okay, well, we haven't had a chance to go through chapter 10, so let's just go through chapter 10. And I read through it two or three times, and something stood out to me more than anything else that surprised me. Because, you know, generically speaking, if you go through chapter 10, it's kind of a transition chapter on to chapter 11. It moves us from the last of, of a couple of judges, Tola and Jair, and then it moves us on and prepares us for what happens in chapter 11, which is going to be Jephthah followed by Samson. And so it's one of those chapters that very easily, if you're not a student of the Word, could be a throwaway chapter. Oh, we'll just move through that quickly and get on to the next story. But don't do that. I'm thankful that the Lord slowed me down this week because there is something precious and powerful in this chapter. Let me just read through it, beginning in verse 1. It says, After Abimelech died, Tola, the son of Puah, the son of Jodo, a man of Issachar, arose to save Israel, and he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, then he died and was buried in Shamir. We talked about Tola last week. Verse 3, After him, Jair the Gileadite, arose and judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities in the land of Gilead that, is called, or that are called Havoth-Jair to this day, or the cities of Jair. And Jair died, verse 5, and was buried in Cainon. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Zidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. One god just wasn't enough for Israel. Thus they forsook the Lord, and they did not serve him. Excuse me. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. And they afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For eighteen years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead in the land of the Amorites. That would be Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh who were on the eastern side of the Jordan. They were taking the brunt of this. It goes on, it says in verse 9, the sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and Benjamin and the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians? And the Amorites and the sons of Ammon and the Philistines. Also when the Zidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. And the sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord and he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Now again last week we looked at the first seven judges of Israel. We kind of reviewed them and ended up with the judge Tola. 
We talked about, we looked at Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Abimelech, and Tola. And now we come to the eighth judge in verse 3 of chapter 10. This eighth judge is a man by the name of Jair. And we're not told much about Jair, except that he and his sons were noble and they were mobile. There's two things to remember about Jair and his sons. They were noble and they were mobile. Why were they noble? Because they had 30 cities. This was not a, a poor man. This is a pretty wealthy guy and his sons. They had 30 cities. They also were mobile in that they rode around on 30 camels. These guys kept the land, kept the judgment of the land as they rode from place to place. The sons were like the deputies of the father who was like the sheriff in these parts. So you've got Jair riding his donkey. You've got his 30 sons riding their donkeys, moving about, keeping the peace. And it might make you think about another son who was deputized by his father to bring peace. A son who also rode a donkey into Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 prophesied this saying Rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion Shout in triumph O daughter of Jerusalem Behold your king is coming to you He is just and endowed with salvation Humble and mounted on a donkey Even on a colt the foal of a donkey And you can read the story in Matthew chapter 21 Mark chapter 11 Luke chapter 19 And John chapter 12 All four gospels tell this story Zechariah prophesied, Messiah the king is going to come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and that's exactly what Jesus did. You know the story of the triumphal entry, how Jesus came into Jerusalem 450 years after Zechariah said, this is how Messiah is going to enter the city. By the way, have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't ride in on a white horse? Why was it a little donkey? It seems like kind of a humble and a meek act to ride in on a donkey as opposed to a white horse. I want Jesus on a stallion. You know, I want him, the white knight, to come riding in to rescue and to save. And he will. He will. But there's a difference between the horse and the donkey, especially in the Hebrew mindset. The donkey, gang, is a picture of peace. The donkey, a slower animal, would be an animal that a king would ride during times of peace. Whereas a horse is an animal of war. The first time Jesus came, he came as the Prince of Peace. He rode that donkey into Jerusalem, a sign of the peace that this deputy of the Father was bringing to the people. The second time Jesus comes, Revelation 19 very clearly tells us, he will come riding a white horse and he will make war. He will come in all of his glory. Now, during the 45-year leadership of Tola and Jair, Israel had no peace. But as soon as these, or had peace, but as soon as the judges died, they had no peace. While Tola and Jair were judging, things were good. Things were managed. Things were kept in check. But the moment the judges died, as happens, as you've seen it, over and over and over, with every single judge, when the judge dies, the people go running off to serve foreign gods. You remember that cycle of judgment we talked about, the compromise of Israel as they chase after other gods and they're crushed by their enemies and then they cry out to the Lord and the Lord compassionately delivers them and they come back to the Lord for a season while a judge takes care of things but then the judge dies off and they're right back in that cycle of judgment once again, the cycle of sin. It's so similar to our lives. I will cry out to the Lord and be rescued and be brought back and feel like, okay, now, now I've got it. Now I'm walking with the Lord. Now I've I've got this life in check and now I'm with my judge and he's delivered me and then compromise begins to set in and the next thing we know, we're chasing after other gods. 
But this morning, it's not the cycle of judgment that caught my attention in reading this chapter. Oh, we see that. But it's also not the character of the judges, as we talked about last week. What caught my attention is the character of the judge himself. It's something that we can learn and understand of God. Keep your finger in Judges 10 and flip over to Isaiah 55 for a moment. Isaiah 55. This is one of those passages in the Bible that can be read over and over and over. For it is so amazing in its description of the Lord. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Isaiah writes, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Now listen, for my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If you really let this passage settle in, the concept is breathtaking. That we have a God who doesn't think the way we think, who doesn't process the way we process. He is so far beyond our manner of thinking, our understanding, as to make Him holy in a way we don't get We don't understand. We will not fully understand that probably ever. But we're not even going to come to a a depth of understanding like we will when we actually see Him, when we are in His presence, when we enter into heaven and we're there with the Lord. We're going to understand at that point a depth of His holiness we can't grasp right now as we're limited by the flesh. And we are going to be blown away. And the Bible says that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of the Father. You know why that's the case? Because when we come into His presence, we will have no choice but to bow. We will be flat on our faces. We will be blown away at the holiness, at the expansiveness of God, at the vastness of His, his mind, the depth of His decision. Psalm 139.17 says, How precious are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! The psalmist says they're like the sands of the seashore. I can't even count them up. When I begin to enter into thinking about God and His thinking and His, His eternal nature, you know that whole concept about how we understand that God will always exist from here forward and we can almost kind of accept that, but the fact that He has always existed that blows my mind. It's one of those things that begins to hurt your head if you think about it too much. He's always been. Ow! He is amazing. Romans 11.33, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now this is what kind of caught me up. I had, I had written through this study. I had studied through it, written down what, what we're going to get to in just a moment. And as I began to process what it was that we're talking about, I thought, how audacious of me to try and come and present to you 
even a single character trait of the Lord God. How absolutely arrogant of me as a human being to stand up here and say, let me tell you about God. Let me explain God to you. Let me help you get closer to God. It's ridiculous to even think that I could put into words the depth of the character of God. As Paul writes, who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? And I actually, yesterday, as I was thinking about this, started thinking, I don't even know if I can teach this. I really got stunned into that place of the fear of the Lord. I understand that maybe a little better now than I did a couple days ago. The fear of the Lord. I actually got a little frightened thinking about talking this morning about God's character. Who in the world am I to bring that to you? Who are any of us to think that we can pull down a picture of God and say, this is God's character. This is what God's really like. It is overwhelming to even begin to think that way. It's unfathomable. And then I read out of a cool little book. Oh, good morning, Cosby. How you doing? You just have fun there. <laughs> I read in this book that I've got at home, and I forget the exact title of it. It's very interesting, but it's talking about Hebrew phrases in the mind of Jesus. Phrases that Jesus used, phrases that are used in the New Testament that come from a Hebrew mindset and what they actually mean. And I was reading a chapter about this phrase, the knowledge of God. In Hebrew, it's Da'at Elohim. Da'at Elohim. And that phrase is much more personal than it reads on paper in English. It's more personal than developing a theology or proving God's existence. When you and I talk about the knowledge of God... We read verses that say, you know, as Paul wrote, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. When I think knowledge, I think study. When I think knowledge, I think book smarts. Knowledge to me is about picking up and taking in pieces of information so that I can make a determination about the world in which I live. Knowledge, the knowledge of God. And so often, we sit here in church and we study the Word... Or we study the cutest little baby that I've seen in a long time. <laughs> you all are so funny to me. There's a dog and there's a baby and Alric will get... But this is so cute over here. <laughs> the knowledge of God. Listen, this is important. We don't sit here studying, and I know I've said this before, but we don't study to get pieces of information into our heads. The phrase knowledge of God to a Hebrew mind isn't about picking up snippets of who God is. Knowledge of God, literally, da'at Elohim, it means devotion and intimacy. The more I know God, the more devoted I am. In fact, da'at Elohim, it comes from the same root word as Adam knew Eve. And you know what that means. When we're told in Genesis that Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bore a son, you know what knowing means. That is an intimacy between husband and wife. And that same word is being applied to the knowledge of God. Devotion to, intimacy to. If you sit reading the word, studying the word, and what you draw out is pieces of information that don't draw you more near to the Father, then you don't have the knowledge of God. You have book smarts. But you've missed what it's about. The knowledge of God... It's coming into a deeper devotion 
of the Lord. It's intimacy. Isaiah 11 verse 9, speaking of the millennium, says that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That says in that time of the millennium, people walking the face of the earth, there's going to be devotion to the Lord and intimacy like we have never known before. The knowledge of the Lord, devotion to the Lord, wanting to know Him in, I believe, a more powerful way even than Adam knew Eve. And again, I tell you this because it's not mental knowledge, mental ascent that we're pursuing. It is deeper devotion to the Father. And as we read through these stories and these chapters and we look at these judges, understand we are looking to know Jesus, to be devoted to Him, to have an intimacy with the Father. That's why we go through this. Now, I am going to tell you something audaciously about the character of the Lord, but before I get there, I want to quickly move through the rest of this chapter. It tells us in verses 6 and 7 that the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. You know that. It's the same cycle. They serve the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Zidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines, and thus they forsook the Lord, and they did not serve Him, and the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and in the hands of the sons of Ammon. It's amazing. When the people of Israel came into the promised land, God delivered them from seven nations. And now, the people of Israel are chasing after the gods of seven nations. At first, I read over this quickly and I thought, wow, they're chasing after seven gods. No, they're chasing after seven sets of gods. You notice the plurality here. It's the gods of Zidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of Ammon. All these different gods. They couldn't get enough. Gods for everything they could possibly imagine. They were chasing after instead of the one true God, and so the Lord gives them over. He allows them to chase after these gods until they are crushed on either side. They're crushed by the Philistines to the west and the Ammonites to the east. They're just being squeezed by the Lord. By the Lord or by the Ammonites and the Philistines? Yes, both. Because the Lord gave the authority, the power to the Philistines, to the Ammonites, to squeeze Israel. Literally to squeeze the gods out of them. So there they are, they're under this pressure. But gang, this is the statement that blows my mind. Let's get down and look at verse 16. They put away the foreign gods from among them and they served the Lord and He could bear the misery of Israel no longer. I have that highlighted in my Bible. He, the Lord, could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Literally, literally this is saying his soul was impatient because of the misery of Israel. And here's the character trait I want you to see if you can grasp this morning. Again, we do so carefully. God is impatient. God is impatient. And you might say, wait a minute, Rick. One of the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruits is patience. <laughs> so you're telling me the opposite, that God characteristically can be or gets impatient. And I'm telling you that yes, the Lord does get impatient. That there is something that brings about the impatience of the Lord. Back in Numbers, in fact, flip back there, Numbers chapter 14. You may recall the story. The people had come to Kadesh Barnea. They had come to the border of the promised land. 
And there after two years of journeying, coming out of Egypt, rescued, they crossed the Red Sea, they came to Mount Sinai, they received the law, they had the golden calf incident, not a pretty scene, but the Lord forgave and brings them along. Another year of traveling, they come to Kadesh Barnea, and they are ready to enter into the promised land. And so they send ahead twelve spies. And the twelve spies come back and they say, wow, the fruit is huge in the land, but so are the giants. At least ten of them. Ten of them were shaken in their sandals and they said, we can't go take this land, it's too much for us, they're too big. And the heart of the people failed. Joshua and Caleb, you remember those two, they stood up and said, no, no, the Lord's on our side. It doesn't matter how big those people are, we can take them and the land will be ours just as the Lord promised us. But gang, God's patience with Israel runs out. He finally gets impatient with the children of Israel. Look at verse 11. It says, The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not not believe in me despite all the signs which I performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. You know what God's saying here? I've had it. That's it. I am done. I'm through with this people. I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses, I'm going to make you into a great nation. It'll be your offspring. And God could have done it. And Moses steps up in verse 13 and says, Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your strength you brought this people from their midst. And they'll tell it to the inhabitants of the land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Moses appeals to God's own nature. He says, Lord, you wipe this people out. Your reputation is going to be hurt. All the other peoples are going to say, see, God couldn't do it. He couldn't bring them in. God is in a place of extreme impatience with Israel. Look down at verse 18. Moses says, The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children, on the children to the third and fourth generations. He's recognizing the character of the Lord and saying, Lord, you can't do this. I, I know you're frustrated. I know you're tired of these people, but you can't do this. Look at verse 27. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in verse 27 saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old upward who have grumbled against me. He is impatient with the people of Israel. He has had enough. Now we talk about the patience of God and the forbearance of the Lord and the fact that He is forgiving time and time again. But there is a point where God gets impatient. And if you want to jot this down, two things to note this morning. Number one, God gets impatient with the pattern of my faithlessness. My faithlessness does bring about impatience on the part of the Lord. Don't think that just because we have forgiveness, that we have grace, that we can turn back to the Father. Don't think for a moment that He's just pleased to do so. Oh, you're asking for forgiveness again? Okay, great. 
The truth is, gang, every time we sin and we're bowing against the Lord and come back to Him, there's got to be a part of the Father's heart that says, How long are you going to keep doing this? How long shall I put up with this faithlessness? What's it going to take for you people to get this? To finally trust me? How long am I going to put up with this? The truth is, I do believe God tires of my faithlessness. The backs and forths, the ups and downs, the I wills and then the I won'ts. I think He gets old for our Father. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And even Jesus said, in one of my favorite quotes to His apostles, He said in Matthew 17.17, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? There is a note of holy exasperation in that phrase. How long, he says, shall I put up with you? They had just brought the son of this this demon-possessed boy. They brought to Jesus for healing because they couldn't heal him. They were faithlessly trying to do it themselves on their own power. And it wasn't working. And so Jesus says, Okay, when are you going to get it? How long shall I put up with you? When are you going to understand, guys, that unbelief and faithlessness is what perverts this generation? He tires of it. But he doesn't tire of it because his love is failing or his love is lacking. When you love and invest everything into someone, it's simply frustrating when you show them something again and again and they just don't get it. Isn't it? I'll tell you what, I'm not frustrated by people I don't know. Someone shows up at the bridge once or twice, they listen to Bible teaching, they confess Jesus, they give their life to the Lord, and then they disappear. It doesn't frustrate me personally. It saddens me that they don't stick with the Lord, but it doesn't frustrate me personally because I don't know them. I haven't really invested my life into them. But someone who I've spent time with, who I've loved, who I've poured myself into, for that person then to turn and walk away, that's frustrating. Or for that person, not that parents, you understand this, when you say time and time again you're trying to get your kids to do something or or get something, and they're just not listening. It's frustrating. And that's what Jesus was feeling, I believe, with his apostles. He'd been walking with them nearly three years at this point, and they still weren't getting it. And he just says with exasperation, how long? He's impatient. He's tired of their faithlessness. By the time Israel arrived on the border of Canaan's land, they should have known of the faithfulness of God that he wouldn't send them into a land without providing for their rescue without going before them. They should have known that. The apostles should have known when they were faced with the problem of this demon-possessed boy in Matthew 17, they should have known the faithfulness of God that God could heal. They didn't know. They still hadn't gotten it. And by the way, gang, it is God's faithfulness that extends my faithfulness. Let me say that again. It is God's faithfulness that extends my faithfulness. My faith is born out of the faith of God. And the Bible tells us we wouldn't even have faith if God didn't give it to us. And we wouldn't have faithfulness 
consistency, commitment to the Lord, if we aren't aware of His, that's one of the reasons why we trace this all the way through the Scripture. Why we are about expositional Bible study. Because time and time again, we get to see the faithfulness of God. That though He gets impatient with His people, He doesn't give up on His people. He continues to love them. He does continue to forgive. And with every act of faithfulness on the part of God that I see in the Scripture, my faithfulness increases a little bit. Because I realize, wow, He's not giving up. It's kind of like that scene, maybe you saw The Return of the King, Lord of the Rings trilogy. One of my favorite epic trilogies of all times. I just finished watching through it again last week. I had lots of time on my back, so I was just watching them. At the end of The Return of the King, there's a scene where Frodo the Hobbit is hanging off of a, of a cliff inside a mountain, and there's lava down below. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. He's hanging by one hand, and he's just about to give up on life completely. He's about to let go and just be done with it. And Sam, his friend and companion, is up on top of the cliff, reaching down. And Sam has tears in his eyes and his mud-stained face. And he's just crying out, Don't let go! Don't you let go! Don't you let go! I'll hold you! And he grabs hold of him. And it's Sam's faithfulness. It's Sam's strength that gets Frodo back up on that cliff. That's the best picture I could come up with for God's faithfulness. It is His strength saying to me, Don't you let go. Don't you let go. I haven't let go of you. I won't let go of you. And the more I hear that, and the more I see that in the Lord, Him saying, I won't let go, the more I say, I won't let go either. Because I know you won't. If I thought for a moment that you'd let go, I would not have the strength to hold on. But you say, you won't let go. You say you're going to hold on, even when I'm weak. I love this passage, John 10, 27. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's how tight a hold he has on my spirit. He says, My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. God's faithfulness. Holding on, holding on, holding on. Though I feel weak and can barely hang on myself, He's got me. And He's got you. And it's His faithfulness then that extends my faithfulness. But, there is a day coming when the forbearance of the Lord will reach an end. When the patience of God will cease with this world. Until that day, thankfully, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that is, by the way, what we see in verse 16. It tells us, Judges 10, 16, that they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord. And that phrase, put away, doesn't mean they put them in the cupboards. doesn't mean they stuck them in the closets. It means they got rid of them. They destroyed them. They put away, got rid of those gods completely and turned to the Lord. They cried out in repentance and then they showed their repentance in their lifestyle, in their behavior. Lord, do whatever you think is best with us. But for our part, we are sorry and we're throwing out these old gods and we are going to cling to you. It's repentance. And the beauty of repentance, gang, is that it returns our devotion. It brings us back to that place of loving God, of wanting to be with Him. But there is a day coming when the patience of the Lord will run out 
with this Christ-rejecting and sinful world. 2 Peter 3.10 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. There is a point where the patience runs out. But watch this. Listen again to verse 16. The last part of it. He could bear the misery of Israel no longer. He could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Again, literally, his soul was impatient because of the misery of Israel. And such is the nature and character of God. Not only does God get impatient with the pattern of our faithlessness, but, more wonderfully, God gets, and this is the second thing to note, God gets impatient with the pain of my faithlessness. He gets impatient with the pain of my faithlessness, the pain that my faithlessness causes me. The Lord, gang, gets tired of my misery, of my hurting, of my pain. He can no longer bear the misery of Israel. That's amazing to me. You know, we see Israel messing it up time and time again. We see them in their own pain. We see them causing their own problems. And we see them crying out to the Lord. And we see Him deliver. But do you stop and think for a moment about what it's doing to the heart of God? That as they are hurting over their sin, He is hurting over their sin. As they are in misery, He is in misery because they're in misery. As they are wallowing in pain, God is bearing up that same pain. His heart is absolutely broken for the place that Israel has gotten themselves. And it's the same with us. You know, it's that godly sorrow that leads to repentance. But it's not just sorrow here. It's sorrow there. Such is the love of the Father that He gets impatient, as it were, with our pain, with our burden. It gets to the point where God says, I don't want them to hurt like this anymore. I don't want to bear up this sorrow, this misery, this pain any longer. Romans 3 verse 3 says, If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true. He remains true, even in our faithlessness. He allows consequences to ride for a season, the consequences of our sin, so that we might be drawn back into devoted fellowship with Him. But there's a point when the Lord can't stand my pain any longer. And that blows my mind. Davis and Whitcomb, in their commentary called Israel... Speaking of this chapter, they write, The greatness of Jehovah and His intense love for His people is nowhere more evident than in this particular situation. They write, Human compassion and concern would long since have been exhausted had they encountered the kind of rebellion that God witnessed. However, the Lord is infinite in His mercy and love and in Israel's great distress, God was grieved. In their hurt, God hurt. In their pain, God was pained. And I call this game the impatience of grace. Impatient grace. I don't know if I shared this, but a couple of weeks back, my son Hayden kicked a boy at school. Just hauled off and kicked him in the shins. 
It's how we train them at home. <laughs> I was sitting in my office and Hayden came in and his mom and I could hear them in the living room talking and my ear perks up whenever I hear something about trouble or, you know, he's done something or he's busted at school. And his teacher had called home to let us know that he had gotten in a scuffle with another kid at school and just hauled off and kicked him. Now I later found out that the other kid probably deserved it, but that, be that as it may, we sat down with Hayden, and Cheryl's on one couch, and I'm on a couch, and Hayden's sitting in the big chair there in our living room, and he realizes he's busted. And see, in our house, you get busted at school, you get busted at home, too. And if there's a punishment at school, that's great, but there's a punishment at home, too. Our kids have just kind of learned to deal with that reality. And I'm sitting there, and Hayden's there, you know, and Cheryl and I are talking, and I finally just looked at, at Hayden and I said, son... What were you thinking? And in that moment, the weight of what he had done came crashing in on his little 10-year-old heart, and he just started crying. I mean, he just broke. And Cheryl looked at me, and I looked at her, and, and both of us, there was that same sense of a parent wanting to jump up and grab, oh, it's okay, it's okay, kick away, it's all right, don't worry about it, you know, not a problem. Because my son was now in pain. And we sat there for a minute. And I, you know, Cheryl and I had that communication that just kind of said, let him hurt. Let him feel this for a minute. But I'll tell you what. After a few minutes of that, I could bear it no longer. And I had to, as he stood up and we talked about what the punishment would be and what was going to happen, and he started to walk out of the room, I grabbed him and pulled him over, and I just held him because I couldn't bear his pain any longer. And that's the Father. That's impatient grace. That's God looking at you and looking at me and saying, You sinned, there's consequence, but I love you so much I can't bear this anymore. So I want you home. I want you back in my hands. We need to grasp this amazing truth about the love of God. He never enjoys our hurt. He never gets a kick out of our pain. It hurts him deeply, so deeply that there comes a point when the Father can bear it no longer. And that just makes me say, oh, the love of God. What an amazing, amazing Father we have in God. Now, lest we talk too much of God's impatience, let me just point out quickly before we end the wonder of His patience. For in chapter 10, we can see in and of itself one of those amazing panoramic snapshots. You ever done that with your camera? You take the camera and you take a picture here and then you move here, take it again, take it again, like that. And then when you get home, you develop it and you put all the pictures together so you can get the whole view. When we were in Israel, there were several people who did that with the Valley of Megiddo because it's so huge. They just wanted to be able to see the whole thing in, in panoramic snapshot. Chapter 10 of the book of Judges is that. It is a panorama of God's love for Israel. Look at it this way. The chapter starts off with Tola, a judge, who delivers Israel. In the same way, the Lord delivered Israel from Egypt, calling them to be His people. But then secondarily, we see a judge who sends forth his sons to deliver. Well, didn't the Lord do that? He sent his son to deliver all who would believe in him. First Israel, as we talked about last week. And then the Greek as well. Then the Gentile. He sent his son to deliver Israel. Then we see Israel's faithlessness in a land leading to their own great tribulation, where they are hard-pressed on every side. And so Israel and the world we live in will see a great tribulation at the close of these last days. They will fall into a similar situation. But finally, 
when the Lord can bear their misery no longer, when they cry out in repentance, He will rescue them from their, Israel, from their enemies. And we're told by Paul, Romans chapter 11, and so all Israel will be saved. He says, I'm going to bring a third of them through the fire. And I will save them when the Lord can bear their misery no longer. It's history in miniature in this one chapter. A microcosm of God's saving grace. And this is the heart of the Father, I believe. I'm, I'm trying, again, trying to grasp. Because when you use a word like impatient with God, you've got to go, Really? But gang, God is impatient with our patterns of faithlessness. And yet, so much more so, He is impatient with the pain our faithlessness causes. And that just makes me love Him all the more. When I understand how He feels from my heart. I pray that this idea, this concept, as you think it through, and please do, please read over that verse a few times this week. He could bear the misery of Israel no longer. But I pray that it will deepen your devotion to the Lord. I pray, if nothing else, understanding that when you hurt, God hurts, even when it's over your sin, understanding that causes you to draw closer to Him and not further away. Causes you and me to want to be near Him and in His arms. But let me ask you this question as we end. What are you impatient with? What am I impatient with? The Lord does become impatient with our faithlessness, but He's more impatient with the pain caused by our faithlessness. How about us? How about how we treat those around us? It is easy for me, gang, to become exasperated with other people's sin. Real easy. I can get sick and tired of someone's sin behavior just like that. It takes no time at all. I've had conversations with some of you where you say, this is going on in my life and it's a result of this sin, and I just go, well, yeah. You do that. That's going to happen. No, duh. That's easy for me. Let me tell you what's in your going. I'm never telling Pastor Rick a thing again. I'm done. But when was the last time that you... Or I grew impatient with someone's suffering. When was the last time we grew impatient with their heartache over their sin? When was the last time I could bear their pain no longer and so had to step in with grace and forgiveness, with the grace and forgiveness of God? When was the last time I just felt the need to say to someone, Look, He forgives you. He loves you. Let's let this pain go away. Man, talk about moving from Philadelphia to Agape. That's it right there. When I can start looking at the pain caused by someone's sin, more than the sin itself, when I feel compassion for the pain that is the outcome of their sin, rather than righteous anger over the sin itself, when I start to feel that pain with that person, to the point I want to pray them through it and see them graced, when I have that kind of impatient grace, Then I am one further step out of the city of Philadelphia, brotherly love, and into the city of Agape, unconditional love. That's the love of the Father. It's a love I want to grasp. 1 Corinthians 13.6 says, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, and love bears all things, and believes all things, and hopes all things, and, yes, endures all things. 
Gang, as we grow in the Da'at Elohim, the knowledge of God, may we also learn from our Father in intimacy and devotion how to be impatient with the pain caused by faithlessness. That we might extend compassion and mercy and love to those around us. Let's pray for a moment. Father, I pray that you would teach us your grace such that we will be conveyors of grace to others. That we would be ministers of reconciliation, messengers of forgiveness, bearers, Father, of redemption. That like you, we wouldn't be finger pointers at sin, but we would be those who feel so personally in our own hearts the pain and hurt of others that we would want to be dispensers of your grace as you have dispensed your grace in our lives as you Father have given us grace upon grace may we be those who give grace upon grace again and again Father teach us to be like you and to live like you And let our lives, let our lives show forth your grace, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.